Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Omicron optimism new research suggests the variant is less likely to cause severe illness. Peak past, scientists say South Africa may be through the worst. And lockdown limits, 13 million in China unable to leave their homes after a COVID outbreak. It's Thursday, let's make a move. A warm welcome, as always, to all our fantastic first movers around the world. It's great to be with you. Thank you for being so loyal this past year. And it's the last session before Christmas at the venerable NYSE, a volatile holiday season that was truly hard to foresee. Remember, market ups and downs are never the key. The best gift, as always, is the best gift of health. And on that, I think we'll all agree. A special greeting to my family, too, who for a second Christmas day, I will not see. I'll see you very soon, Mum and Dad. That I can guarantee. Now, enough rhyming repartee, though. A green Christmas, it could finally be. Look, I couldn't help myself. Stock market futures higher, adding to a strong two-day advance. There's been plenty coming down the market chimney this holiday season. A Powell monetary punch, an Omicron case crunch, a U.S. fiscal deal that lacks a final seal. And yet the S&P 500 just 1% from record highs. Fresh data this week shows the U.S. economy is in a strong position before the Omicron surge with consumer confidence, in fact, at a six-month high. And that, I think, is giving support to the market, along with promising new but anecdotal health data on the relatively lower severity of Omicron. That data helping support European shares. Airlines, the big gainers with British Airways parent AIG, up more than 2%. Asia also higher, despite news of new Chinese lockdowns. And China warning that the Winter Olympics in Beijing will surely lead to new infections too. A busy hour to trek, lots of hauls to deck. Let's get to the drivers. And we begin with those early Omicron studies levering cautious good cheer. Two new pre-publication papers suggest the risk of hospitalisation with the variant is much lower than with Delta. One of those studies indicates it may even be 80% lower. Jacqueline Howard joins me now. Jacqueline, great to have you with us. A number of new studies, three in fact, South Africa, England and in Scotland, non-peer-reviewed, and we'll continue to reiterate that point, but it seems that the symptoms of Omicron are less severe, according to these studies, than Delta. That's right. These studies add to the growing evidence that Omicron may be less likely to cause severe illness compared to Delta. So the study out of Scotland showed that there was a two-thirds reduction in hospitalizations of uh, vaccinated people who were infected with Omicron compared with those who were infected with Delta. So I should say the studies add to evidence showing that if you're vaccinated, that does increase your protection against both variants. But this particular study showed a two-thirds reduction there in hospitalizations when it comes to Omicron. And there was also a data out of South Africa that is new data showing a reduction in uh, hospitalizations and severe illness with Omicron compared to Delta. And here in the United States, Dr. Anthony Fauci presented some of this data in a White House briefing just the other day. Have a listen. In fact, it appears that in the context of South Africa, there is a decrease in the severity compared to Delta, both in the relationship and ratio between hospitalizations and the number of infections, the duration of hospital stay, and the need 
for supplemental oxygen therapy. So just to give you some numbers, Julia, the data that Dr. Fauci presented out of South Africa showed that when compared to Delta infections, Omicron infections were associated with 70 percent lower odds of severe disease and 80 percent lower odds of being admitted to the hospital. This is early data. It hasn't yet been peer reviewed, but it adds to the anecdotal news that we heard from doctors in South Africa who said that they noticed some of the Omicron infections were milder compared to Delta. Jacqueline, very quickly on this as well. Any separation in any of these studies between the impact on the vaccinated and on the unvaccinated? I'll just say, Julia, that, again, these studies really emphasize the importance of getting your vaccine. One of the studies showed that the data uh, also, you know, showed having received a third dose of vaccine or booster shot was associated with a 57 percent reduction in the risk of symptomatic Omicron infection when compared with being just uh, 25 weeks out of completing your second dose. So the studies really do show the importance of getting vaccinated and if you're eligible, getting your booster shot as well to really build up that protection against this emerging variant. Julia? Message heard. Jacqueline Howard, thank you for that. On to airline stocks now, flying higher as always today is expected to be one of the busiest travel days of the holiday season and across Europe. New travel restrictions don't appear to be slowing things down either. Anna Stewart has been checking it all out for us. Anna, great to have you with us. Glass half full versus half empty, I think, on Omicron, at least where investors are concerned. Yeah, looking at European indices today, only modestly high, actually. But some of the good news from that study or the multiple studies that have come out, certainly filtering through to airline stocks today. And they, of course, are the ones that have been severely punished uh, throughout December, ever since Omicron was identified. So showing you those today, um, leading the stock 600 early this morning, EasyJet, IAG, Wizz Air and Lufthansa, all still higher. They've fallen off, actually, from the highs we saw earlier today. All of them were actually about a percent higher still and are actually inching back towards price levels we haven't seen since November 24th, which is when Omicron was first discovered. And actually Lufthansa at one stage this morning did pass that point. Um, I think there is clear hope here that in addition to the human health impact uh, of Omicron perhaps being less severe than Delta, there's also a hope here that the economic cost could be less too if it results in fewer restrictions. But plenty of ifs, plenty of buts, plenty of coulds. This is uh, early days, new data not peer-reviewed studies, and of course the transmissibility of this variant, particularly we're seeing it here in the UK, could still be quite a big threat in terms of healthcare systems. Julia? Yeah, and very quickly, Anna, I know you're uh, driving off now to Devon for Christmas with the two cats, and we have to remind our viewers <laughs> what your cats are called, because I do think it's genius names. Oh, yes. Um, Claude Miaoué and Pablo Porcasso. <laughs> of course. Makes total sense. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Thank you. Merry Christmas, Julia. Yeah. Okay. Past the peak. That's the message from a top scientist analysing data from the nation where the Omicron variant was first identified. South Africa is one of the few countries on the continent where cases are down compared to last week, with a decrease of around 20%. Larry Madawo joins us now. Larry, great to have you with us. Fingers crossed on this one, but we do seem to be seeing that case count falling now. It's falling quite precipitously, Julia. And this is the first bit of good news. I've spent most of this month reporting in South Africa, the height of this Omicron wave. And this is the first time that I'm now seeing a lot of South African research scientists, epidemiologists, virologists, all of them confident enough to say they think South Africa has now surpassed the peak of cases. 
Part of the reason is because the epicenter of this outbreak has been in Gauteng province. That includes the very popular city of Johannesburg, and case numbers are dropping there. But they're also seeing a drop in new detected cases across the country in many of the provinces, and they think that's promising. And so what they're saying is this could be because of two reasons. One, because vaccination numbers are increasing, and two, because of natural infection. This spread so fast within the community that a lot of people got natural immunity, and that has helped. So not as many people got sick, which means there wasn't a strain on the healthcare system. There were not that many people in hospital and very few people who ended up dying, Julia. Yeah, and that's a key question, isn't it, whether natural immunity in the community played a part here and or the level of vaccinations or otherwise. Larry, and this is a, a follow I wanted to ask you. Is it encouraging people, this latest wave and what we've seen, to go get a vaccination if they haven't already? So that's a controversial question in South Africa and I actually did um, a story about that because there are people in South Africa who don't feel convinced and they think the government or the employer should not be asking them to get vaccinated. And what some major South African companies, banks and insurance companies, telcos have done is institute vaccine mandates to say if you come to work on January 1st, you need to be vaccinated or you need to test regularly or you might get fired. But there's still a whole number of people who think that this is not undemocratic or that it's against their rights and you've had these arguments in western europe and in the u.s as well so still an uphill battle that the government is dealing with trying to convince enough south africans to get vaccinated and the south african government itself now considering a vaccine mandate just to go against all this vaccine misinformation and conspiracy theories that have really seeped into the population yes we're no strangers to that all around the world larry great to have you with us thank you so much for that to China now, and admitting the Winter Olympics could mean new COVID outbreaks. Beijing is doubling down on its zero COVID policy for now, with 13 million people in the city of Xinjiang under strict lockdown. As Selena Wang reports. The Chinese city of Xi'an and its 13 million residents have been put under strict lockdown. The city has recorded more than 200 COVID-19 cases since December 9th. Residents are largely banned from leaving their homes, but one designated person from each household will be allowed to leave every two days to buy groceries. Otherwise, residents are only allowed to leave in the case of a medical emergency or for, quote, urgent or necessary works. That's according to the local government. Xi'an has also shut down all schools, public, transport and facilities except for essential service providers. This is the fourth time a major Chinese city has been placed under strict lockdown. The first was back in early 2020, when Wuhan, ground zero of the pandemic, went into lockdown. With the games now less than 45 days away, the country is doubling down on its zero COVID strategy. Cities are locking down and mass testing residents in response to just a handful of COVID-19 cases in the country. Olympic participants will have to be in a strict bubble and tested daily. If they are not vaccinated, they'll have to quarantine for 21 days upon arrival. If China pulls off the Winter Olympics successfully, it would be a propaganda win for its handling of COVID-19 and for its authoritarian system. Selena Wang, CNN, Tokyo. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. President Vladimir Putin says Russia's future actions in Ukraine will depend on the United States and NATO. He says Russia's security interests must be guaranteed. President Putin said NATO had broken pledges not to expand eastwards. Not a single inch to the east, they told us in the 90s. And what do you know? They cheated. 
They just deceived us blatantly. Five waves of NATO expansion. And there you go, now in Romania and Poland, weapon systems appear. This is what we are talking about. It is not us threatening someone. Have we come to the borders of the USA, of the UK maybe? They came to us. Hong Kong's last public memorial to the victims of the China's Tiananmen Square crackdown in 1989 has been removed under the cover of darkness. The Pillar of Shame, quote, as it was called, stood at Hong Kong University for more than 20 years. But last October, the pro-Beijing legislators said it had to go. The Danish artist who created the sculpture has expressed his shock at its removal, which happened overnight when most students are off campus for the holidays. At least four people have been injured in an explosion at an ExxonMobil plant in Texas. The Sheriff's Department is calling it a major industrial accident. The company says a fire broke out at its refinery in Baytown. Okay, so to come here on First Move, genomic geniuses. A crack team of speedy South African scientists first alerted the world to the Omicron variant. We speak to the man who leads them. And the final frontier gets one step closer. We speak to the European Space Agency as its most ambitious telescope ever made gets ready for liftoff. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. No time for Grinches or even Scrooges on Wall Street. Future still showing Christmas tree green on the screen. U.S. stocks racked up some sweet candy cane gains Wednesday with the S&P 500 and the tech-heavy Nasdaq up more than 1% apiece. Speaking of tech, chipmaker Intel, the latest U.S. company caught in the human rights tensions between Beijing and Washington. Intel apologizing in China for a letter sent to suppliers telling them not to source products or labor from the Xinjiang region where China has been accused of human rights abuses against minorities. Chinese media calling the letter absurd. A Chinese pop star even quit as Intel's brand ambassador. An Intel spokesperson tells CNN that it will continue to make sure its global sourcing complies with applicable laws and regulations around the world. In the meantime, a viral blizzard is coming. That's a stark warning from my next guest, who says millions of Americans are likely to be infected by Omicron over the next three to eight weeks, and it will challenge healthcare systems. He says 10 to 30 percent of healthcare workers in the U.S. could also get infected during this time. Joining us now is Michael Osterholm. He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. So great to have you on the show with us, even with such concerning news. Describe what you mean by a viral blizzard, first and foremost. Well, first of all, thank you for having me uh, with you today. Uh, As you've witnessed in other countries around the world, uh, once Omicron starts to take off, at least for uh, three to eight weeks, you could expect to see major increases in case numbers. And we're seeing that here in the United States right now. It's been remarkable just in the last uh, five to seven days how many metropolitan areas are now reporting widespread Omicron outbreaks. So I think this is unfolding much as we've seen throughout Europe uh, and South Africa. And now we're seeing in a number of other African countries. So basically we have to be prepared for what's coming these next few weeks. We were just talking anecdotally on the show about studies that have been done in Scotland, in the UK, also in South Africa, to your point, that have been hit before the United States, suggesting that the severity of the disease seems to be lower when compared to Delta. Do you expect anecdotally again to see the same things in the United States? 
Well, I think that it is the case, in fact, that there is a, uh, a real likelihood that we're going to see over the course of the next uh, several months around the world uh, the situation where the cases uh, overall are milder. However, what uh, I think is often missed in that conversation is the fact that there are going to be so many more of the cases that even if uh, a smaller percentage of them actually have severe illness, the absolute numbers of people who are severely ill and needing hospitalization could actually be higher. Uh, here in the United States, we still have a large number of people unvaccinated who are surely at high risk for serious illness. And we're seeing many breakthroughs right now in individuals who have even had their three doses of vaccine, which uh, is not good news on one hand. On the other hand, I think they are less severe because of that. And the vaccines are protecting them from being severely ill hospitalizations and deaths. So I think that we are going to see this milder spectrum, but I'm not sure that that by itself is going to uh, really make the big difference in terms of what's happening to our healthcare systems. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and it's certainly one of the takeaways for me from looking at all three studies that we've seen just in the last few days is that the sort of timing mismatch in the data collection on the data that we're comparing for Delta, the collection period is sort of April to November. And then obviously for Omicron, we're looking sort of November, December data. It gives you a sort of six month period to have greater immunity just simply by people getting COVID in the interim. Do you think that makes a difference in terms of the comparisons of what we're seeing, that greater degree of immunity, perhaps in some way lessening the impact of the, of the virus yeah. that we're seeing presenting people today? No, that's a very important point. And there are other uh, factors like that, just trying to compare two populations, for example, mm. where one may have an older age uh, overall than the other one. That by itself could uh, have an influence on just how many people have severe illness in which the diseases could be exactly the same but appear to be different. Uh, the Financial Times did a very important analysis yesterday where they actually compared cases of Delta that are occurring now against cases of Omicron that are occurring now. And there they did see still this uh, sense of, of a, a reduced severity. But again, it's not the, in the numbers that would offset necessarily the increase in cases that will occur with such widespread transmission. Uh, you know, I, I have to say in my 46 years in the business, uh, I've not seen what I see happening right now in the United States in terms of just the number of families that are being impacted by Omicron. Just in the last day, I've learned of five different friends, colleagues, families yeah. where a student came home from college thinking they were not infected because they had taken a test several days before, and now they transmitted the virus to people in those families. That's remarkable to see how fast that's happening. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things here. There's, and it's again, it's anecdotal. I'm hearing the same thing that people are doing rapid tests and it's not picking it up, that the PCR tests aren't picking it up for a number of days too. And I think if we bring it back to the symptoms, there's this perhaps suggestion that if you just get a runny nose with this, oh, it may be a cold. It's the best advice to people here if you have any form of illness or any form of feeling not normal to any degree, you almost have to assume you have COVID and act accordingly. I think so. I think that's a very important point because in the end, what, we're, what are we trying to do? We're trying to prevent severe illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. Those people who are immune compromised, those people who have underlying comorbidities, as we call them, for having serious illness, including uh, having high body mass indexes, you know, we don't want to have those people get infected and find out that, yes, indeed, Omicron still can kill those people. And so I think that that's the important message is we can help each other right now. And, and one of the 
points that keeps getting made is getting vaccinated. Yes, 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 get vaccinated. But remember, it takes even after three doses of vaccine, 10 to 14 days after that third dose before we're really seeing uh, the vaccine uh, protection kick in. So you know, if you're just getting your first dose today, don't think you can get it this morning and go to some social event tonight and be protected. That's not going to happen. Yeah, immunity takes time to build. You said something recently, and I wanted to ask you about it. You said Mother Nature may have helped in a twisted way by delivering a strain that's less severe but highly transmissible so it can outcompete the severe delta. Your point here was um, it sort of gives a greater degree after this of natural immunity without having perhaps the same degree of severe illness that we've seen in the past. Can you put it into English for, for viewers, please, perhaps what it means after this? Yeah. You know, we don't really know. Uh, You know, one of the big challenges is the fact that what is going to be the next new variant? You know, last April and May, I said um, numerous times that I thought the darkest days of the pandemic could still be ahead of us. And I think a lot of people at that time were not comfortable with those statements. They thought that I was being extreme and scary. Well, now we see what we have happening with both Delta and with Omicron. What I continue to be very concerned about is what's after Omicron. And that's why we need to continue to do research on vaccines that we call pan-coronavirus vaccines, meaning they cover multiple of the different strains. And so, you know, we can't just assume we're going to be out of the woods after the, uh, uh, you know, this Omicron surge passes. Uh, we're still going to be living with COVID. Michael, Bill Gates said similar thing, that perhaps we haven't seen the worst of the pandemic yet, but he still reiterated, as he said in the past, that he believes the pandemic ends in 2022. Do you disagree based on what you just said there? I don't disagree. I just hope that's true. But I also realize Mm. hope is not a strategy. (laughs) And so in that sense, we still have to be prepared for the fact that we could see new variants emerge, ones that may not be more transmissible, but now may have new mechanisms for evading the immune protection. So all the protection that we've accumulated over the course of the last two years, you know, may not be nearly as helpful if a new variant emerges. So I think that's what we have to be constantly looking at. So on one hand, we've got to deal with the right now, the next uh, two to eight weeks here in the United States. But we've got to also keep an eye on the future and say, what are we going to do if another new variant emerges? Let's not get caught flat-footed. Yeah. Hope is not a strategy. Michael, great to have you with us. Thank you. We will have to act responsibility. Have a happy holidays. You too. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll speak again soon. Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota there. Okay, we're back after this with the market open. Welcome back to First Move and back to our top story now. And as we've heard, encouraging signs about the rapidly spreading Omicron variant first detected in South Africa. Scientists there say they've passed the peak of the Omicron outbreak, which doesn't compare to the chaos when the Delta variant swept through the country. CNN's David McKenzie has more. Dispatched south of Johannesburg, paramedic Mohammed Rasul says Omicron is nothing like Delta. During then, it was only COVID, 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 and nothing else. Will you be able to walk, sir? We were with them during the chaos, when the Delta wave of COVID-19 ripped through South Africa. Severe patients crashed quickly. Rasul's team spent hours looking for hospital beds. Charities like Gift of the Givers rushed to set up field clinics, scrambled to distribute oxygen concentrators to save lives. With Omicron, they say they haven't sent out a single one. Uh, it's a patient that's complaining of tightness in chest. 
Russell says their call-outs now are for less severe patients. Like this 46-year-old who tested negative but is still suspected of having COVID. Reassess after five minutes, check the chest. But there's been a surge of cases of COVID-19 with Omicron, but there hasn't been a surge in severity or hospitalization. This kind of call-out is pretty typical. What advice do you have for other countries that are facing a Omicron wave? Don't panic. This is, uh, it w- you will ride the wave. Far less use of oxygen, far fewer people being admitted despite the high numbers of cases. Very high transmission of people getting mild illness, not even getting diagnosed at home. It's still unclear why it's seemingly milder or whether that will translate globally. Scientists here believe up to 80% of the population in South Africa may have had COVID-19 before, likely providing a shield of immunity against severe infection. Vaccine coverage also plays a major part. This would have been an absolute nightmare if it was Delta. So I think we can just be very grateful that it has not been as devastating as uh, it could have been. But there's still reason to be cautious, it seems. Yeah, well, we've learned with, uh, with COVID generally, you never let your guard down. For a brief moment, though, Rasul dares to hope. Severity of the illness is not that as it was. So I'm actually quite optimistic about it. David McKenzie, CNN, Johannesburg. The genome of the Omicron variant was first logged by South African scientists in mid-November. On the 26th of the month, Omicron was declared a variant of concern by the World Health Organization. That we now know so much about Omicron is thanks to the swift action of the South African team. And joining us now is the man who leads them. He is Tulio de Oliveira. He's the director of the Center for Epidemic Response and Innovation in South Africa. Tulio, first and foremost, I just want to say thank you to you and your team for the work that you do on a continual basis and, of course, for raising the flag. Um, we're now more than a month on. What are your observations today in light of the decision that you made and the work that you do? Okay, thank you for for the invitation, yeah. So so our observation now is that we did the right thing. Why we did the right thing uh, is because it was very important for both South Africa and the world to have a very early detection of such variant. As, as many of the speakers in your program before me highlighted, yeah, it's a very transmissible variant, but through vaccination, previous immunity, and hospital preparation, we are seeing a much lower case fatality ratio and disease severity. And a lot of that is about acting quick and very fast with a sense of urgent to new pathogens or in our case, a new variant. Yeah, and it is an incredible response time. I mean, you raised the flag. It was designated a variant of concern within three days. Um, it, within 48 hours, governments had acted for, for better or worse. And within three weeks, I believe it was in 87 different countries. Just based on what you know already and your experiences of, of identifying these variants, how long do you think it was circulating before it was found? Okay, so 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 the first thing, yeah, we as you highlighted, the whole response from we finding the first genomes confirmed with hundreds 
of genomes across dozens of clinics, hundreds of kilometers away in South Africa. And I personally talking with our president, Ramaphosa, was 36 hours. So is a word able to identify, validate, and communicate to very high level officials. Yeah. As we, we do analysis, and we have not only done that in South Africa, but we have been aided by, by all the top scientists in the world there, we believe that the date of origin of the most recent common ancestors, they say, uh, when this variant has in, uh, generating an individual that fall in a population is around 10 of October of 2021, with intervals between beginning of October and end of October. So was was really, really recent variant. Yeah, we, we do not know where it come from. It can come from South Africa, can come from anywhere in the world, especially as it emerged in, in Johannesburg, which is home of the biggest airport in, in Africa. Yeah. So, but what we know is that in, in general, this variant is less than one and a half months old. Yeah, I'm just interested to get some sense of the timeline in light of the actions that governments took. And I know you were very critical of the of the decisions to close borders on African nations, including South Africa. And the idea that perhaps it was in a month and a half already in progress tells us something um, very important. Do you think there's a deterrent effect having been created by that with people perhaps who in the future may identify variants but be cautious about raising the flag because they're afraid of the response that will take place on their own nation, in your case, in, on South Africa? Yes, 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 of course. Just, just, just one simple correction. Yeah. When we identified the variant in South Africa, that was 23 of November of this year, we, we had only a few hundred cases a day in yes. the whole country. So, so, so yes. was not a widespread variant in South Africa. And again, could easily be introduced here. In relationship to the, the travel ban and the reaction, that, that, that's very detrimental for not only South Africa, but for global health in general. Yeah. In the case, luckily, these, these were found in South Africa that we have a very transparent and honest government. As, as I talked to our president, he say with half an hour, you're gonna go to a press briefing with our Minister of Health, yeah. And second, we we, we are very used about, about dealing with epidemics and pandemics. We had 20 years of HIV and TB epidemics, which it also caused a lot of, of discrimination to South Africa. So I would almost say that we have quite thick skin to, to deal with that and to and to be quite activist and fight against the discrimination. But imagine if if that emerge in a country that do not have the same transparent government and yes. need the scientists that are very used yes. to deal with epidemics, uh, we could have a global a pandemic emerging and which which people knowing that was emerging and not raising the alarm because the the, the repercussions. Tulio, you raise a very important point, and that's why I ask, because I want people to understand um, what took place in South Africa and the decision to be open, and the timing was incredibly fast. Um, I also want to ask you something else, because you have been very pointed in your concerns about lack of vaccine access to parts of the world. Um, And the World Health Organization said this week that we can't boost our way out of this pandemic because you've got parts of the world that aren't even getting an access to one vaccine. Do you feel that Africa as a continent has been let down by COVAX 
by the World Health Organization, by those that are behind that, providing funding in, in not getting more access to, to vaccines, a first dose in that part of the world, especially before other nations get boosted? Yes, 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 absolutely. And, and, and that's something that we're starting to be quite vocal around over a, a year ago, and not only me, but also Sir Jeremy Farah, the, the head of the Wellcome Trust, and, and Dr. Tedros, the, the, the director of the WHO. Not only we have been left behind, but we have been treated extremely unfairly. So, for example, Botswana, which, which, which is not a poor country in Africa, have ordered uh, millions of doses of the Moderna vaccine, paying twice the price as available to the developed country, and still today they are waiting for the vaccines. So what we have found is that uh, a lot of time Africa, even when they pay for the vaccines, they get in the back of the queue. And unfortunately, the world will have to learn that if one treats with such a discrimination, and I would say almost like racism, uh, Africa Unfortunately, we're going to derail the whole advance of the pandemic, the global pandemic. And we have been quite vocal that we have a global pandemic and we have uh, uh, we need a global response. And the Omicron may not be the, the most little. It's, of course, the most transmissible variant and may not be the big one, neither the, the, the big variant or the big pathogen. And I really think that more than ever, a wake-up call to the world to take very serious the global health security. Yeah, And in the same way, to not only to not punish countries that identify pathogens and variants, because that will derail the, the honesty, but to support and have a financial mechanism and a support mechanism that we act global to prevent pandemic. And as we identify new pathogens and variants, we become very clear and very quick. So for example, by our early identification of Omicron, we potentially have saved hundreds of thousands of lives in the US because you have time to boost your population, you have time to put some, some um, a, a, a response and you have time to prepare your hospitals. So why should we be punished for that? I think that South Africa and Africa should be rewarded for this transparency. I think you raise an important point, which is we are one world fighting this pandemic and we have to work together or we will never get through it appropriately and safely. Um, Tulio, thank you so much for your time. And I, I can't verify your point about Botswana, but I promise you I'll look into what's going on there in terms of cost of vaccines. Um, Tulio de Oliveira there. So thank you the director of the Centre for Epidemic Response and Innovation in South Africa. And once again, sir, thank you for raising the flag to you and your team. OK, up next. Could this be the closest thing to a time machine that mankind has built? How the most powerful space telescope ever can unlock the secrets of the universe? Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stocks are up and running on a special day on Wall Street. 
Twas the final trading day before Christmas and all through the NYSE house, investing creatures are stirring, be they bull, bear or mouse. Actually, we're seeing some reindeer cheer following Wednesday's more than 1% rise for tech stocks. But a lump of coal move for Chinese tech giant JD.com shares falling after Tencent moved to distribute a more than $16 billion stake in JD to shareholders as a one-time dividend. That's 84% of its JD.com stake, call it an end of your gift to placate Chinese regulators worried about broader tech consolidation. Tencent shares, meanwhile, rising 4% on the news in Hong Kong today. Now, it's a secret the universe has kept longer than time itself how the cosmos came to be. Now, humanity is about to get a glimpse like never before, as the most powerful telescope ever built is launched on Christmas Day. The James Webb Space Telescope will take images of some of the earliest stars and galaxies formed in the phase after the Big Bang. It's 100 times more powerful than the Hubble Telescope, thanks to its ability to detect light beyond the visible spectrum. Gunter Hasinger is the Director of Science for the European Space Agency, which is working alongside NASA on this historic mission. Gunter, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I think the best comparison I've seen made of this is that it's a time machine because we physically are going to look back, and I'll get this right, 13 and a half billion years. Yes. Yes, I got it. (laughs) Good morning, Julia. Very nice to be with you. And indeed, we are looking back in time. It's almost like looking into our mother's womb and look how we have been born. Wow. Talk to me about the science of this. I mean, this is 25 years in the making, I believe. Yes, so the first ideas were already uh, made before the Hubble Space Telescope even was launched. Uh, And now we are um, 20 years later and we are now just a few days, maybe two or three days before the thing goes up. And um, indeed, uh, indeed, it is uh, a very powerful machine and it is not only able to look at the first moments in time, but it also is able to look for planets around other stars to look whether there may be signs of life in the atmosphere of these planets. So it will transform our knowledge and it's fascinating. I mean, I've read it's as big as a tennis court. I've mentioned it's 100 times more powerful than the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, Just explain some of the capabilities here, too, because I talked a little bit about the light. It's got an ultra-sensitive infrared camera, which I believe could identify the Queen's face or Abraham Lincoln, depending on where you're watching from, on a penny at a distance of 24 miles. Yes, so indeed, um, I hope you hear me. (laughs) Uh, I can. Okay. Sorry. Uh, indeed, uh, the, the, it's powerful because the mirror is three times bigger than Hubble's mirror, so it collects 10 times more light. But then also the telescope is cooled so that it doesn't radiate in the infrared itself. And that makes it 100 times more sensitive than uh, the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, and indeed, we can then, because, you know, the universe is expanding and the distant light is getting redder and redder and it's getting lost of our eyes. But we can look into the heat uh, radiation, uh, the infrared radiation, and we can basically pick up the very first stars in the universe. Wow. I mean, in terms of the logistics of this, just talk me through that, because it's going to take a while for the telescope to be in position. And I've also read it has to execute 344 single points of potential failure, so maneuvers, in order to unfurl that mirror that you just mentioned um, and deploy the five thin layers of the, the sunscreen effectively, which keeps it cold and dark. 
Yes, so indeed, it's actually 300 or something like that mechanisms. Uh, the single point failures, fortunately, are only about 50 or 59, but this is oh. enough uh, to really let us Keep hang us on nervous. our fingernails and everything yes. works. <laughs> and so the first thing that happens only a few minutes after the rocket releases the telescope is that the sun, um, uh, the, the solar panels are uh, unfolded. And so then we have power. Uh, then it takes a while that the antenna has to be folded out so that we can communicate. And then already the very delicate suns sunscreen, which is a tennis court size um, structure, uh, very thin um, Kapton layers, uh, plastic foil, five different layers. They have to be uh, pulled out and stretched. And that takes roughly until um, early January. And then the the telescope, the mirror itself is unfolding like an altar, like a triptychon. Uh, there's a central part which is fixed and the other part is uh, folded. So then the telescope will be complete. And how long is that going to take until it's in position, unfurled, and then can start taking pictures and, and sending them back to Earth? Yes, yeah, so we say that after the launch, which is already exciting enough, there will be about <laughs> 29 days of terror. <laughs> Uh, it will take 29 days before the telescope arrives in its final position. Uh, and But then it still takes a few months before everything is working because the telescope also has to cool down. It has to get cold. Uh, all the instruments have, been, have to be tested and the mirrors, the very fine-tuned mirrors have to be um, uh, established. So it takes uh, about six months before we can really see the very first um, science data. Oh, it's going to be so exciting. And what about human or robotic intervention along the way if something goes wrong? How capable are we of, of tinkering along the way? No, unfortunately not at all. So, you know, Hubble was able to be serviced. It was constructed to be serviced. It is uh, near Earth where astronauts could go. Uh, where, where James Webb goes, nobody, no astronaut can go. Uh, we could dream... We, we could dream of a um, uh, robotic mission maybe in, I don't know, five, ten years from now. Uh, but so far, it is not planned to be serviced. Um, so I think only, I mean, we really have to keep fingers crossed that everything works um, for that time. Never mind, never mind fingers. I'm keeping everything crossed. And I don't think I've <laughs> ever done an interview where someone smiles the whole way through, which you have. And I think I've joined you in that. What are you most excited about seeing, Gunter, in six months' time? So, you know, I love black holes. I studied black holes for most of my career. And I'm currently working together with my colleagues on a theory where the black holes could actually be the dark matter, which is absolutely fascinating. It would solve several puzzles on, with one go. And James Webb is the first one that could, in principle, get a glimpse of these. So if, if my theory, our theory is true, then there should be many more galaxies at early times than uh, we are currently expecting. And so James Webb probably will be able to shoot this theory down or maybe not. Quinta, you and I have a date. Come back, please, and talk to me on this show when we start to see some of those images and um, we'll talk it through again. Super exciting times and everything crossed. Sorry, so thank you for joining us. Thank Good you very much. It was a great pleasure. the European Space Agency. Mine too, sir. Thank you. 
And breaking news now. One new update in the battle against COVID-19. The United States has just authorised a second pill to treat people who've been infected with COVID-19. Merck developed the pill and the US has already ordered three million courses of the drug. The company says they believe their new drug will be effective against the Omicron variant. The first antiviral pill from Pfizer was approved in the United States yesterday. So more hope and more first move after the break. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. President Joe Biden says his administration is making progress in resolving supply chain issues. Bottlenecks have created a shortage of consumer goods and pushed up prices. Biden met with executives in the distribution sector Wednesday, including the CEO of FedEx, for an update. It came as the Omicron variant threatens to put new pressures on the flood and flow of goods around the world. Now, despite fears of a major shipping crisis, deliveries in the United States have actually held up pretty well before Christmas. According to the analytics firm Ship Matrix, for the week beginning December the 5th, deliveries were on time for the vast majority of deliveries from FedEx, UPS and the U.S. Postal Service. Most delays were only by one day. Ship Matrix says that carriers were able to add capacity and many shoppers placed their orders early or in person. And finally, on First Move, it's the time of year to ring out the old, ring in the new and send greetings to business leaders who never fail to outdo. So to Jeff Bezos, we wish you a Blue Origin rocket-fueled 2022. So many VIPs experiencing the view. Jeff, just ask and I'll join the crew. To Elon Musk, congrats on being Time's Person of the Year. You are a game changer, it's clear. But your stock sales, meanwhile, caused quite an atmosphere. To Mark Zuckerberg, we hope your holiday is simply meta. And as for your policing of your website next year, we hope you do better. Yes, I sound like a New Yorker. To Jack Dorsey, Bitcoin bull and first holiday season exclusively at Square. Don't tell us you hide your crypto wallet passwords behind your facial hair. And finally, to NFT art sensation Beeple, whose line of work confounds most people. We hope your gifts, like your rise, remain inexpungible. And if you're lucky, your presence will also be entirely non-fungible. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages as always. And as always too. And for the whole year through, stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. And I'll see you next year. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.